0: to get that deal and let's get on with the show. So every time there is a tragedy, obviously people are looking for answers and a lot of those answers kind of revolve around this idea of what should the government do or perhaps not do. And obviously with the tragedy just happened in Texas, the other one that happened in New York, a lot of the same people are saying we need more gun control. And some of them are even coming forward and saying that, and if you don't believe that we need more gun control, then there's something wrong with you. You're either ignorant or you're a bad person or you don't care about what's happening in some of our inner cities, our schools, et cetera. What we're going to do today is we're going to debunk that. And we're going to go through some of the most common anti-gun arguments that are made. And we're going to present you with the arguments that you need to be able to refute them and to demonstrate that the reason why we're refuting these arguments is not simply because we like guns. Is because we think the proposed policies will not only fail to address the problem, but will actually make it worse. I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument, and we're looking forward to this discussion today.
1: Thanks for listening to this episode. I hope that you will walk away today with some valuable information. And if you do, leave us a comment on the YouTube channel letting us know, a review on Apple Podcasts, and now a review on
0: Spotify as well. All right. As always, I'm your host, Nick Freitas, member of the Virginia House of Delegates. And specifically, I'm also going to mention that I am also the subcommittee chairman for Public Safety Subcommittee 1 in the Virginia General Assembly, which actually hears all of the gun legislation in the Commonwealth. So I'm going to be... Relying on some of that experience to be able to address some of these topics today. Unfortunately, Tina is not able to be with us. I wish she was. Uh, this is an issue that's near and dear to her heart for a variety of reasons, but uh, hopefully we'll be able to get her to weigh in on the future. Obviously, we also have our resident historian and political prognosticator, Christian Hines.
2: Hi. When you said we don't actually care about guns, I was about to get up and walk out of the room. <laughs> I did not say we did not care I'm about guns. just kidding. Um, and
0: then obviously our producer as well, Nicholas Hamilton. It's a
1: pleasure to be here, Nick. So today we have 10 talking points from the left, yeah, and we're going to address each of those. We're going to roll right through them. Uh, but, Nick, I want to hear what your response is mm-hmm. to each of these items. Gotcha. So we've got 10 of them. Here's the first one. The Second Amendment is only meant for a well-regulated militia.
0: Okay, so this is this is an argument that's brought up a lot, and it seems to be plausible on some level because when you read the Second Amendment, it says a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state— comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms should not be infringed. And so I think we we look at that from a modern interpretation and we think, okay, well, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the militia. And, you know, we really don't have state militias now. I mean, some states like Virginia have like a Virginia defense force, but sure. ultimately that's the role of the National Guard at this point. So that's what the Constitution was referring to. Here's why that can't be true, right? Not, not you know, just my interpretation, my pro-gun interpretation. Here's why that can't be true is that if you look at the way the Second Amendment was written, and if you look at the surrounding arguments that were being made by uh, the members of the Constitutional Convention, and if you look at the the arguments that were made surrounding around private gun ownership, there was a couple of things they were taking into account. One of it was they actually were very concerned about standing armies. They, they were very concerned about a federal government that would have a standing army that would then be used as a tool of oppression against the states, right? So that, that was one concern. Um, another thing that they were obviously concerned with is that we were very much a frontier nation at the time. We had just got done fighting you know, a war against the most powerful land force uh, in the world. And we had done so largely based off of militias. And those militias were based off of individually armed citizens, right? So it wasn't as if you know, the, the you know, Virginia colony or the Massachusetts colony, or whatever. it's not as if they all just came in and started providing everyone with firearms. Um, that, that happened to some degree. But no, it was, there was private gun ownership uh, for most of these people, because, again, many of them lived on the frontier. Many of them had to defend themselves, their families. They you know, had to use them for hunting, et cetera. So people will ask, well, then why is the Second Amendment written in the way it is? And actually, there's two arguments being made for individual gun ownership in the Second Amendment. Okay. And this is, this is the part that a lot of people get confused on. They think that, okay, yeah, sure, the first part talks about a well-regulated militia, but the second part talks about the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. So you know maybe one's for the other side and one's for our side. Nope, both of them are, are for individual gun ownership, and this is why. The first part, a well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, what the founders are acknowledging there is that in order for a free state, a free country to remain free, you have to be able to have an armed group—you have to be out of a group of armed citizens, which can work in concert with one another to defend themselves against outside oppression, right? Against some sort of uh, invasion, right? And and again, this was something that the founders were very very familiar with on a number of levels. So the argument they're making with the well-regulated nation and the reason why they talk about it is because militias were understood to be made up of the people. Um, so they, they weren't the same as a standing army. They, they were called up under certain circumstances in order to defend a free state.
1: Okay.
0: The second part with, comma, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed, was a recognition, especially at that time, that the federal government had no authority to essentially make gun laws or to restrict private gun ownership. And that was important for two reasons. One, because the founders obviously recognized that you had an individual right to be able to provide for your own self-defense, your own security right? And they also recognize that free countries don't remain free if the people don't have the ability to defend themselves, right, against all enemies, foreign or domestic. And so it, it's important to understand within the context of the Second Amendment, anybody that uses that argument, oh, it just meant a well-regulated militia, they, they, just, they probably have not read a lot of the debates with respect to the Constitutional Convention, the debates with respect to um, you know, what was going on in the individual states and whether or not they ratified, the reason why we have the first 10 amendments to the Constitution, sure. commonly referred to as Wh- the Bill of Rights. Where can we
1: go read those debates that were taking place?
0: So there, there's a couple different places. Obviously, the Federalist and the Anti-Federalist Papers sure. are, are really good discussions. They also have, um, there, there's a book series um, called, I, I, think it's, uh, I think it's called the Constitutional Debates. Okay. Because you got to understand when they were actually having the Constitutional Convention, it was closed doors. There was no press. Because they want to be able to have you know, a robust conversation among yeah. themselves without immediately relying on the press to try to push one way or the other. the The arguments that became a lot more public were after the Constitutional Convention was over and this was being proposed. And then you had a lot of states that were not willing to ratify the Constitution unless... There was a specific bill of rights that was that was another mechanism to restrict federal. What, was
1: this an issue that all of the founders were on the same page about, or was there dissent or disagreement here?
0: I, I, I mean, I'm sure you can find some, but the the vast majority of the found, vast 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 sure. majority of the founders, um, thought that individual gun ownership was was Critical. essential, right? You you can always point to people like Hamilton that later on, yeah, Alexander Hamilton (laughs) that later on became a a lot more kind of authoritarian in his view of the role of the federal government. But what's fascinating is that the Alexander Hamilton that writes the Federalist Papers in defense of the Constitution is constantly laying out these restrictions on federal power, enumerated powers, et cetera. It was only afterwards that all of a sudden he wanted more federal power. But what what you will find is is the, the vast, vast majority of Founding Fathers... You know, truly believed that individual gun ownership was essential. So
2: the uh, to to add to what Nick said, um, Madison's notes on the Constitutional Convention in Philadelphia is probably the most comprehensive contemporary source on these dis- okay. you know discussions for the Constitution. That's not necessarily for the Bill of Rights though, because that came later. As Nick was pointing out, when the Constitution was introduced, it didn't originally have the Bill of Rights until a lot of the Founding Fathers, many anti-Federalists or soft federalists that knew there should be a constitution but were insisting that no, no 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 we cannot agree to this document until this this and this is added in mm-hmm. in there and the this this and this ended up being the first to tenth amendments and you know as, as nick said it was almost unanimous among the founding fathers yeah. including the federalists who conceded to okay fine we'll we'll have a bill of rights there, there wasn't really much of a debate over that the debate was you know, can we agree to the Constitution without it? And the consensus was basically no, which is yeah. why when the Constitution was ratified, it came along with the, the first ten amendments, which is why we call that the Bill of Rights. And um, so I mean, the Second Amendment has been with the United States since the incorporation of the current governing document that we have, which is the Constitution. But I would go so far as to say that when you're reading, any of the first ten amendments or the original Constitution, it's important. This is why originalism is more important than textualism. Yes, because it's not enough to just read the plain text because language evolves over time. Sure, it words change meaning over time. So when when we read "well regulated" today, it, this is one of the most sophomoric arguments I've ever heard. Which is, oh, well, it says "well regulated" in the text, so that means we can take away your gun rights and the federal government can regulate it. No that is not what that means well regulated in this context in an 18th century context means well disciplined mm-hmm. it means you don't have a bunch of armed bands with no sort of leadership and no training roaming around the countryside like it's somalia well well regulated meant meant a, a militia that knows how to use firearms
0: well, and and again the important thing to there's an important distinction here because some people will say okay fine i agree to your terms Then if you're not in a well-regulated militia, then you don't get firearms. Like, okay, once again, no. The reason why it says the right of the people to carry up and bear arms shall not be infringed, and the reason why that is relevant to a well-regulated militia is, because the well-regulated militias is what Christian's saying, is that you had to be a disciplined fighting unit, right? That's what the militia was. State militias were disciplined fighting units. But those militias were made up of individuals that had firearms. So it, it... it's important to understand the context of what was going on at the time, why they wrote it a particular way. Mm-hmm. But again, nothing in there can be construed as the federal, especially not the federal government having any sort of jurisdiction with respect to the regulation of firearms. Sure.
2: I want to end this whole entire question segment with pointing out that. So first off the it's in order to have a well-regulated, a.k.a. well-disciplined militia that you need to enshrine the individual right to bear arms. You can't have a well-disciplined militia if Nobody has the legal authority to be able to bear arms. Not only that, but this applies to any sort of political discussion, but especially in the Second Amendment, that whole, you know, interpreting the language type of thing, originalism versus textualism, understanding the context behind the words versus just reading the words themselves, because if— if you believe that well-regulated militia means that, that's the equivalent of saying that Nietzsche's the gay science means that he's talking about drag queens and lab
0: coats.
1: <laughs> well, th- this conversation we're having on originalism versus textualism takes us, is a great segue into our second question here. And I think what's interesting about this is, is that in order for someone on the left to make this argument that I'm about to state, they have to have come to the conclusion that the Constitution is not a living document. And textualism is the way to interpret the... Uh, what the Constitution says, but here it is: the Second Amendment was only meant for flintlocks or firearms which were accessible at the time.
0: Yeah. Um, so th- this is this is an argument that I see being made a lot, especially on social media. And every time I see it being made, I find it I find it a little bit comical um, because usually people are making the argument on social on a social media platform. So let me get this straight. If the government were to come in tomorrow and say, you know what, we can totally regulate your social media accounts, your email, we can do all of that. You'd be like, no, 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 I, I have freedom of speech protected sure. by the First Amendment. Like, oh, but the First Amendment, the founders couldn't have possibly anticipated Twitter or email or anything. No, no, no. That was just for, like, quill pens and, you know, regular published newspapers. Right?
1: Yeah, do you agree with inf- making journalists get licenses?
0: Yeah. So you, you look at it like, okay, guys... I understand how badly you want to try to make this argument. I understand how badly they want to try to root that argument within the constitution because the constitution is ultimately the, you know, the, the law of the land. But if you do it this way, if, if you're willing to say that, well, because, you know, a, a Colt 1911 semi-automatic pistol didn't exist at the time that the second amendment was written, clearly that doesn't apply to Okay. Well, great. Then, None of the other laws with respect to privacy, with respect to your First Amendment, with respect to your right to assume, none of those things which have adapted over time as a result of technological innovation are protected by the Constitution anymore. You really want to go there? And, and and what they generally understand is, oh, crap, no, I don't want to go there. But you you see this argument repeated, and it is just, again, it's one of those superficially plausible things. Oh, well, the founders could have possibly have anticipated well, actually, and if you want to even get more technical, actually they did. Um, people don't seem to understand the, the, the state of weapons technology at that time was far more advanced than most people think it was. They think it was, Oh, you know, one shot, three minutes. That was it. That was not the case at all. Uh, there, there was far more rapid firing instances. The, the founders clearly anticipated like where things were going with respect to weapons development. So this is, this sort of argument is bad. Um, in one sense, which is to say that the founders made a constitution that they didn't think would apply to, you know, anything in the future. And that's not true. They, they were trying to actually enshrine certain principles that had a broad application, regardless of how things changed over time. Um, that's the first point. The second point is if you are willing to accept that interpretation, that left, that, that anti-gun interpretation of the second amendment, then theoretically you would have to accept a similar interpretation of things like the First Amendment or the Fourth Amendment or the Fifth Amendment, and that's where it gets really scary because now what you're essentially saying is you are so you are so determined to try to demonstrate that the Second Amendment doesn't protect you know, firearms today that you are willing to essentially pave the way for an authoritative, surveillance, oppressive state because, well, the founders didn't know what email and, and Twitter was. And that's just—I'm sorry—that's just not the case. To be fair,
2: that's not really a hurdle for some of these people. If you were to be like—I mean, rightfully so—if you were to point out, well, then by that same logic, the First Amendment only applies to you know block letter printing presses. I mean, some of these people also want to attack the First Amendment as well. No, it's so, true. It, I, well, it's, and that's
0: where it get, that's where it gets scary.
2: Yeah. It, it. I mean, but you're you're totally right that. If the Second Amendment only applies to Flintlocks, then the First Amendment certainly does not apply to online speech yeah. um, at all, or really anything beyond Gutenberg-style oh, yeah, printing yeah, press. TVs, <laughs> yeah, you know,
0: you know, television journalism. You're not allowed. Nope, sorry, you got to get special. We can regulate that because the founders didn't anticipate television. It's just, it is really, really bad reasoning. Um, and and it's amazing to me when someone puts that out there, like oh, I've defeated your argument. Like, no, what you've done is essentially eradicate any sort of protection for rights that I'm willing to guarantee. You think are pretty yeah. important. I mean, I think that the
2: to sum up these first two arguments here on a constitutional basis, there's no question that the Second Amendment is an individual right that's that's thoroughly protected. Mm-hmm. It's some of these other questions that I I had a chance to take a look at before we started this show that I think are the more compelling arguments that the left has in terms of, you know, like how does a gun owner actually answer them? Because mm-hmm. I, I don't think there's really, I think the the argument is airtight when it comes to the well, constitution. And, and
0: I think, and I think we're moving into, well, but I, I also think that's one of the reasons why some anti-gun activists will attempt to find arguments within the constitution, because if they can't, what it means is that they have to actually fundamentally alter the second amendment right which is not easy to do um you know or, or they've got to convince us that oh no this already exists and it's perfectly fine if we do it or that the constitution doesn't matter at all yeah and that yeah. that is the third Just route stack that, the court that's the third route that, that they're increasingly going in and it's a little bit scary
1: moving on to our third one i've heard a lot of people over the last week say gun control has worked in australia and the uk so why can't we do the
0: same thing here so, so that's interesting for two reasons. Um, one is is that it, it it's actually kind of a dubious claim that gun control worked right. in the in the UK and Australia. What do you mean worked? Oh well, there's less gun violence. Okay, it could be knife violence. So, so let's look at. So is is gun violence the only violence you're concerned with? So if, if gun violence drops by twenty percent, but knife violence jumps by a hundred percent, have you made have you made your citizens better off?
1: Have you solved the problem?
0: Yeah, have you have you solved the problem? And and I think most people would say, well, no. Maybe they would say, yeah, but but guns are more dangerous because their capacity to do you know mass carnage is significantly higher than a, than a knife. Um, and and fine if you want to have those those debates on that, you can. the, the problem that I have is that. When you look at places like Australia um, and and typically when the left looks at their stats, they will take like the year before a, a gun law went into place and then they'll look at it afterwards. And and that's actually a really deceptive way to look at statistics because if you want to get a if you want to get a good kind of use case if you want to get a good sampling size you have to look significantly before the law went into a place and then after and you have to actually look at trend patterns and what you find in places like Australia especially because that's one of the most common ones used the UK not as much um, Australia had a, a mass shooting at, at Port Arthur and 28 days later their legislature came in and just said hey we're we're confiscating firearms. Like we're doing a buyback program. They didn't come in and say, we want some more background. They said, we're doing confiscation and gun buyback. And then what they saw is, um, their, their murder rates were lower the following years. And so they say, ah, see, this is what happened. Well, when you actually take a larger sampling size, here's what you find. You find that their murder rates were already going down significantly. The murder rates were already going down before they ever passed this. And it wasn't going down any faster or, or slower, uh, you know, statistically, in a statistically relevant manner of speaking, after they passed this law. And so you, you I mean you you have groups like what is it five thirty eight um, which is not a not a right wing pro-gun side at all. They just do statistical analysis and data analysis. They went and they looked at and they and they they went at it from a pro-gun control perspective, and they looked at Australia's gun laws and they said, well, first of all, it would probably almost be impossible to do what they did in Australia and the United States. Second of all, there doesn't seem to be any statistically significant way that you can do a causation correlation argument. Right. And a lot of times what, what you will see in some of these arguments that are used is they will say, OK, um, here was the murder rate the year before we did it afterwards and, and it went down. Therefore, that's what caused it. And again, that's what we call a causation correlation fallacy you have to actually be able to demonstrate that there was a, a direct correlation between the two things. And again, if, if you're just wanting to say, I want to stop gun violence, then okay, well, great. I, I want to stop automobile crashes. And the one way I could do that is I could, I could ban the driving of cars. Now, obviously that's going to have a whole host of other problems. Um, you know, there's going to be fewer people that can actually like, you know, maybe get to the hospital on time or, or whatever. And, and here's, here's part of the problem with the way that they, they look at these statistics. If your overall goal is to lower like violence in general or or aggressive violence, I should say criminal violence, then those are the numbers that you look at. Mm -hmm. You don't just look at one particular version of it and say, okay, well, we're going to stop this. Well, if by stopping it here, you increase other types of violence in these other areas, just like if I ban everyone from driving a car. Right? I, and I, and I reduce the number of people that die on road accidents, but I actually increase the number of people that die as a result of not being able to, you know, the, you know, shutting down our transportation system and not being able to get food. Have I improved the situation? Right? No. I, I might have improved one statistic, but I haven't improved the overall situation. We saw this with COVID lockdowns. It's like, oh, all right, we, we locked down COVID. We did something. okay. Um, and and maybe you and, and the crazy part now is even with COVID lockdowns, they've come back and said, well, actually, it didn't even really stop the spread there in any sort of st- statistical uh, relevant fashion. But you did cause a whole lot of damage in the economy, which actually led to other deaths and problems. And so, a, a reasonable person looks at statistics in a comprehensive fashion in order to determine causation and correlation, and they look at overall cost benefit analysis. I actually had a I actually had a an activist come to my office in Richmond and get very upset with me over this. And it was the whole, she was kind of making this, if it saves one life. And I was like, okay, but what if it costs you, what if it costs you more lives? Like, what if you have fewer gun deaths, but you actually have more murders because of the person that now doesn't have access to a firearm and be able to defend themselves? Have, have you made things better? And and they couldn't even grasp that that was, that was something to consider because that didn't factor into their cost-benefit analysis, and so when we look at things like has gun control worked in Australia and UK, if you're being honest, one, you need a much bigger sampling size, and the moment you do that, the 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 so far the um, the statistics they're using in order to try to justify it goes away. Secondly, you they're not taking into account other costs associated with doing that, whether it was you know, people being more susceptible to violent crime because now they don't have the ability to defend themselves. And a lot of times that ends up being more marginalized um, populations. It ends up being people live in high crime neighborhoods. It ends up being people that are not physically strong. They're the ones that are, are usually at a, at a much, a greater disadvantage when they don't have the means to be able to defend themselves against a stronger attacker. So that, that whole argument is, is problematic on a, on a number of levels.
1: Those who are anti-gun, it's just crazy for them to imagine that someone may be able to use a firearm to protect themselves.
0: Well, it, it isn't, though. And, and I'll tell you why it isn't. They, they pretend it is when it's like you or me. But fundamentally, they know it actually works. And I'll tell you why. It's because anytime they're in danger, they, they, they call, call somebody the with a gun, right? They, they call somebody with a gun. Yeah. <laughs> so they, they know it works. They just don't trust that it's going to work for you.
1: There's, there's a story out of China in twenty March of 2014. A group of knife-wielding men men attack a train station in southwestern China on Saturday, killing 29 people and injuring more than 130 others. Oh, I remember
2: this story. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I Can I add one thing to the oh, Australia discussion? I love when people on the left are, are pointing out that like, oh, well, they don't have a whole bunch of mass shootings in Australia. They haven't since 1996, um, you know, because, oh, well, they just went around and confiscated all the guns. First off, I don't care what policies they have in Australia. I don't. I don't live there. I live in the United States and Australia doesn't have a second amendment. We do. So good luck trying to amend that Mm -hmm. or packing the court in order to get rid of it. Second off, um, last I checked uh, in Australia, they started rounding people up and throwing them in internment camps for a virus with a 99% survivability rate. And you know what? They can't do that in the United States. And there's a really simple reason why they can't do that in the United States. Mm -hmm. And I think we all know the reason behind that. So I would rather keep my individual freedom and keep my ability to defend myself and not have a government that has the legal authority to collectively round up people and put them in, in camps because of a virus with a 99% survivability rate. I am very glad that I did not live in a quasi-totalitarian state like Australia has been for the last two years.
0: Yeah. Well, and, and one of the things, to, and to mention UK briefly before I move on to the next one, uh, the, other, the other issue with UK, they're, they're now talking about outlawing knives and <laughs> never London. stops. Yeah, it, because what it, what they saw happening in some of these places when people either handed over their guns or participated in buyback programs or could be prosecuted for using a firearm to defend themselves, um, what they found is other types of criminal activity increased. Sure. And so, you know, it used to be somebody would case the house before they would break into it. Why? Well, because if you don't know if they have a firearm or if they have the ability to defend point. themselves, then you... You don't want them there when you break in. Well, if you know they can't defend themselves, you might not care as much as, as you otherwise would have. Well, and so you you actually increase the amount of criminal activity in certain levels, and and by increasing that criminal activity, even if it isn't in, intended to be violent, you increase the probability that it can turn violent. And then you have to ask the question: Well, who, who's the again? Who's the most susceptible to not having a firearm? Is it, um, you know, it, it's probably not me, right? I'm, I'm two hundred and ten pounds. You know I spent half my half my life training how to fight right but that that's not true of my wife right that's mm-hmm. not true of my kids that's certainly not true of my grandmother right and and they're the ones that if you put them in a physical altercation, they're not going to win, but if they have the ability to defend themselves with a firearm, well now and you've you helped train them to be prepared
1: yeah. in a situation like that oh yeah i think and and really going back to the buybacks real quick who who turns in their guns <laughs> during a buyback
0: well it, yeah it,
1: I don't think it's criminals uh,
0: yeah. Well, it's in Australia, they were saying that they, they, think, they think they got between a third to half through, through the buyback program.
1: I'm sure every criminal turned in their yeah. gun.
0: Was that the question you were going to ask? Was about the
1: no. the buybacks? No, nope, Chris, I'm moving on to my next question right now. Nick, I've seen so many people on the left say that all we want is common sense gun control. And I find the word, use of common sense just to be hilarious.
0: So whenever I hear that, here's the problem. They don't mean it. Um, now I do believe that the the person that this isn't an issue that they're pouring over or really concerned about. It's not something that necessarily drives into the polls. They see a horrible tragic event happen. They see a firearm being used. They see a politician get up and say, "I don't understand why we can't have just you know reasonable background checks or why we can't keep guns out of the hands of, of violent offenders." Like why why isn't or or uh, people with mental health issues? And they think, yeah, that, that makes sense. I want I want laws for that. Yeah. Okay. Those same politicians that are saying all we want is common sense gun control are then referencing the UK and Australia. Okay, so what was the common sense gun control? The same politician that says nobody wants to take your guns, we just want common sense gun control. If you're referencing the UK and Australia, they took the guns, right? That was So we've already, de- we've already determined that gun confiscation and buyback programs, that is you are going to sell this gun back to the government by this date or it's illegal for you to possess it so we can criminalize you. We could put you in jail for the mere possession of something that was legal before we put this law in place. That's what they considered to be common sense gun control. And it didn't have the effects that they promised it would. So the real question is, whenever someone says common sense gun control, I always look back and I'm like, no, 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 be specific. What do you want? Because the same people that I saw tell me on the floor of the House of Delegates year after year after year, no one wants to take your guns. I mean, they treated us like we were moonbat crazy. Because we said if you get power, you are going to try to do gun confiscation. What did they do the, the year they took the House of Delegates, the Senate, and and the gun? What did they do the very next year? They carried a bill which would have outlawed, um, you know, not just AR-15s, but other semi-automatic rifles. They would have outlawed, you know, certain semi-automatics. You would have been the way the bill was originally written. You would have been a felon if you owned a fifteen-round magazine. We're not even talking about a gun now. A 15-round magazine, which comes pretty standard if you go buy a, you know, a Beretta or a Glock or you know whatever else, a Sig. You're now a felon for each one you own. So you got a couple guns in the house, maybe one for you, maybe one for your wife. You got two magazines per. I got news for you, Haas. That's four felony counts. Four felony counts. Now they they try they realize, okay, gosh, you know, we're making some people mad here. We're going to make a misdemeanor account. So they're still legal misdemeanors. You can still do a year in jail for each magazine. And I got up and I said, you know, you guys have told us over and over, no one wants to take our guns. You now want to take them. You're going to confiscate them. They're like, nothing in this bill talks about confiscation. Oh, that's right. You're not going to actively confiscate it. You're just going to make me a criminal if I continue to own it the next day. So you're going to require me to hand it over and, and this is why I look at this. I'm like, when you say common sense, I don't, I'm tired of hearing that. Common sense gun control. All right, if that's all you want, you need to give me specifics. And here's what Well, we want an assault weapons ban. Okay, great. You've, you've solved almost none of the you know, murder problem with respect to when guns are used. Almost none of them. Yeah. And, and even with respect to mass shootings, you, you haven't even addressed a, a fraction of the majority of those. And then not only that, but you haven't defined what an assault weapon is. An assault weapon ends up being a semi-automatic. See, most people are listening. To this and go like, "Well, yeah. Why does anybody need a military-grade weapon?" Okay, what's military-grade? I, I had a nineteen. I had a Beretta in the military as my sidearm. That's a semi-automatic pistol.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Is that military-grade? I had. You know what? I also had. I had a sniper rifle. It was a Remington, It was a model Remington seven hundred bolt-action rifle. Boom! Each time you got to work hunting. the bolt. Very popular hunt. One probably one of the most. Popular hunting rifles, and mm-hmm. is that military grade? Well, no, no, we just mean assault weapons. Okay, what's an assault weapon? Ask them that. What's an assault weapon? Most of them think it's a fully automatic machine gun, which, oh, by the way, started getting heavily regulated in the 1930s and were essentially outlawed completely unless you go through multiple checks in order to get them in In the 90s. so Or they'll say, well, we just want background checks. You already got background you checks. You got them. And y- to
1: be- that point, what the left will never come out and say, or any politician will come out and say, is that the background check system is ineffective in stopping people with felonies from purchasing firearms because 95% of all kickbacks through the four, uh, four, form 4473, w- the background check form, 95% of the kickbacks are false positives. Well, and. And, and then the other 5%, which are actual felons attempting to buy firearms through a gun store, are rarely acted upon by the ATF. Mm-hmm. And then you have to ask the other question, why would any individual, knowing that they were going to be stopped from buying a firearm in a gun store, go to a
0: gun store to buy a firearm? Mm-hmm. Well, and that's where they go into, you know, they talk about these loopholes. Mm-hmm. Um, the gun show loophole. Yeah, the gun show loophole. Not or true. Whatnot. And, and here, they, here's... Here's the issue with this. So we, we went through it, right? What, okay, what do you mean by, so when someone says all we want is common sense gun control. The first thing you ask is, okay, what do you mean by common sense? Give me specifics.
1: Background checks for, 20, uh, moving the background check for rifles or the legal age to purchase up to 21.
0: So, okay, that, that might be one thing that they look at. So my question would be like, okay, so I'm old enough to be drafted. I'm old enough to go to war. I was 18 when I was in the Army. All right. I was 18 when I was shooting rocket launchers and, and belt-fed machine guns. You're you're telling me that now I I can't I can't own a pistol. You can draft me against my will into yeah. the military, send me to a faraway land to get shot at and die for my country. To include the Bill of Rights, but I'm not allowed to exercise my Second Amendment rights when I get home, right? So th- this ends up being one of the problems, and, and this is the other point I wanted to make, right? Because we've we've addressed these other comments. We've addressed that when they say common sense, they don't really mean it. Nope. Typically what they really want is gun confiscation because when they get in charge, that's what they attempt to do. Then they move into this whole idea of, well, we, we just want, you know, background checks. You already got them. They're not working very well. And then they move into, well, we, we want universal background checks. Oh, okay. Well, how do you achieve a universal background check? You have to have universal gun registration. So here's my next question. Name me one country in the world, that has instituted universal background checks with universal gun registration that hasn't then engaged in some sort of mechanism Mm -hmm. of confiscation every single time. So all I want is for when someone says common sense gun control, I want them to be specific and I want them to show me how they're going to achieve what they think they're going to achieve without actually taking my guns, which is what they're telling me they don't want to do.
1: Just a a really quick point on the universal background check system. In in the last month it's come out on behalf of a lot of the work that Gun Owners of America has done that the ATF has been keeping uh, background checked forms for the past 20 years. Now, they are legally allowed to keep those forms for the past 20 years, but they were crossing the line when they digitized those forms in a searchable format because that would constitute a national registry. So, each one of those forms that they have or record comes from a purchase through an FFL. And once you, if you were to institute universal background checks, every firearm purchase or transfer, like, Christian, if I was going to sell you a firearm, you and I would have to go to the local gun store, go through the background check system. That purchase, that record would go into the ATF's mm. rec- uh, registry system. And they claim it's not searchable. Gun Owners of America has done a lot of work on this. You go to their YouTube channel, no, tons of job. video on this. But it's just, but that's something that the left will not discuss. Nobody wants to talk about how the ATF has been building a national registry behind her back and then claiming that they're not. Um, and so. You know, if if universal background checks were to take place, that is a national. Well, and,
0: and again, I think some pe- again, some people are not paying attention to like, well, what's your problem with what's your problem with gun registration? And again, that's where you look at it's like, OK, uh, and they well, we I have to register my vehicle. OK, you have, you have to register your vehicle in part because, you know, you're, you're driving on a public Government road roads. usually. Right. And they'll say, well, OK, fine. If you're taking your firearm somewhere part of the distinction that we have to keep in mind is why do we have a second amendment in the first place? And that was mm-hmm. so that people can actually provide for their own defense. Why would people want a universal gun registration or, or gun registry? Well, every, every other country that has done it mm-hmm. has used it as a mechanism to confiscate firearms. So this idea that we're being unreasonable by saying, look, I don't trust it, I know this probably blows some people's mind. I don't trust the government no. to actually protect my rights or to provide for my own security since they've regularly demonstrated that they're not capable of doing it effectively. So no, I'm not going to give you a mechanism which has been used every single time in history mm-hmm. as a way to actually take or, or to deprive me of those essential liberties that you keep telling me you don't want to deprive me of. So that's that's the problem with this, you know, all we want is common sure. sense gun control. And they'll come back with
1: this, you know, we need this registry or this record database at the ATF so that we can use it to search to find criminal records or records of gun purchases. And then when J- Gun Owners of America ask them how many times has this database been used to trace a firearms purchase back to a criminal... They said, we cannot say whether it has done so or not. Yeah. They would not give a number for it. Uh, let's, let's move on to our fifth point here. Uh, Nick, I've seen so many people on the left, politicians, everybody and their brother talking about how if we just had more gun control, we could
0: protect our schools. I, I, like, I don't I don't understand this argumentation for a, a couple of reasons. Again, on the superficial plausibility, the idea of like, OK, a gun was used if guns were harder to get. Therefore, maybe a gun might not have been used in this situation. Okay, again, are, are you trying to stop the mechanism that the person is using in order to carry out an evil act, or are you trying to stop the evil act? Right. And if the me- and if you're just trying to stop the mechanism, well, my gosh, there's there's all kinds of ways we can just, you know, we, we can do something like that uh, in the hopes that it will achieve the, the outcome that you want, but there's certainly no guarantee. So let, let me explain what I mean by that. If somebody uses an instrument to carry out an illegal or criminal act, there's a couple of different ways that you can look at that. You can look at the act itself. You can look at the the motivation that went into it. You can look at the circumstances. You can look at the different ways that you can prevent that from happening. Or you can take the inanimate object and you can say, this is the problem. Now, this assumes a couple of things. One, it assumes that if you take away one inanimate object, they won't find a different one in order to carry it out. Two... It also means that your right to use anything or to own anything is now subject to what someone else might use it for in an inappropriate or criminal circumstance. So now all of a sudden, I, I don't <laughs> I don't have a right to own a firearm, not because I did anything wrong, but because you did something wrong. What, What else do we apply that to across the board? Like, what else do we apply that to? S- this person did something wrong. Now the rest of you can't have it. That doesn't seem to me like the most effective or efficient way Mm -hmm. to actually deal with this problem, especially when you're actually depriving me of the ability to defend myself from the person that might still be able to get access to the thing that you've told me I can't have. And that's one of the things that I always stress whenever we're talking about issues like that. When the government says we're going to ban this for everybody in the hopes that it will affect some people, they cannot promise you that it will adversely affect or prevent the bad person from using it the one thing they can pretty much guarantee is that everybody that will follow the law will be adversely affected. So they're, what they're, the only thing they're promising you is they're going to adversely affect a bunch of law-abiding people in the hope that it might prevent somebody over here. Now, here's my question with schools because we, we've had so many discussions on this in, in Virginia. Again, I sit on the Public Safety Committee and we've tried to get more school resource officers. We've tried to get more school security. We've tried to come up with different mechanisms where uh, you know people are able to, you know, we can have uh, different devices that make it easier to coordinate with local law enforcement. We have different uh, mechanisms or technology that they're trying to use to harden our schools to make it a more difficult target. And whenever it comes to more school security, I, I have a lot of my colleagues on the other side of the aisle that vote against it. And we're looking at them going, Okay, you you keep telling us that your concern is for school safety, but then when we when we argue for more school security, they respond with this little trope. We don't think the answer to school shootings is more guns in our schools. Which is not only intellectually dishonest because it's not like we had a bill that said, Oh, there's been more school shootings. Let's dump off guns at the schools. Let's that's, mandate they carry yeah, around. That's firearms. not what we did. We yeah. said, let's have more security there that can actually prevent this from taking place. But when they say, when they say more guns in schools is not the answer, here's how you know they don't really mean it. Because whenever there is a school shooting, whenever there's a violent act of any kind on a school like that, what's the first thing anybody does, regardless of how they feel about guns? They pick up the phone and they call the police. They ask people with guns to show up as quickly as they can to stop something from happening. Here's my question. If you can can acknowledge that calling the police is necessary to stop the school shooting, why can't you acknowledge that additional armed security on site would be necessary to prevent a school shooting? And that's the part where you st- You have to wonder. The same people that are saying you have blood on your hands if you don't want to confiscate firearms or if you don't want to ban certain guns in the hopes that it will affect the person that is going to use a gun for an inappropriate or criminal purpose, the same people that are saying that apparently don't have any blood on their hands when they vote against additional armed security for a school. And I find that especially frustrating when it comes to politicians, and here's why. On January 6th, one person was shot. That I know of. And it was somebody that was storming the Capitol, and they were shot by a Capitol police officer, shot and killed. What was the response from politicians in DC? Oh. Oh, oh, I know what it was. It was to bring in law enforcement from several surrounding states, the National Guard, put up fences, put in additional security measures. But when we say, hey, if it's good enough for you, maybe that's something that we should consider. And we're not even talking about the National Guard or, or, you know, fences all around. We're saying additional security measures, Mm -hmm. hard in the classrooms, more security. So anybody anybody that wants to go to school, and let's face this, we all know this right now. If somebody is going in to shoot up a school, it's because they are trying. They are trying to get into the news. They are trying to do something so evil that would gather attention. And they are picking a vulnerable place. They are picking a place where they know that the probability that they will be confronted with armed security or anybody possessing a firearm that could potentially stop them is zero. So the moment we add additional security, the moment, it, even if you don't, even if you don't add, you know, five police officers, even if not every teacher has access to be able to to defend her classroom, even if you don't do that, the fact that they know that, well, that school has this policy in place, that school has these school resource officers, that school has this, all of a sudden that target becomes a hardened target and it's not one that they focus on. And yet I'm being told by my, the same colleagues that tell me the only solution is, is more gun control or, or if they're being honest, confiscation, are the same ones that don't want to provide for more. And you know what the response is when we bring this up? Well, we don't want more school resource officers because that's just going to increase the school to prison pipeline. Well, how do you feel about the school to cemetery pipeline? Is that one bothering you enough yet? To actually put armed law enforcement there to be able to protect our schools? So I, I'm I get really, really tired of this, not just simply because I, I completely understand and have a, a rational conversation with somebody that really wants to understand and do what it is, whatever is best to protect our schools. I have very little tolerance for the same politicians that sit there and vote again. I can show you the votes that will vote against additional security uh, officers. I had a bill that said that if you were former, we, we wrote our bill in Virginia in such a way to where if you were former law enforcement, so if you were former Virginia law enforcement, you could go be a school resource officer. You were eligible to be a resource officer or a school security officer. So we have two different versions of this, sure. but you still had to go through security. Well, we, we had realized that a lot of our law enforcement in Virginia, we had a lot of federal law enforcement, right? They weren't eligible. Because the way the law was originally drafted was they weren't Virginia law enforcement, so I had a bill that said, "Hey, look, <laughs> you know, it, obviously if you're federal law enforcement, you've gone through some of the things, you still got to go through this training, but you, you're eligible to be a resource officer." The vast majority of the Democrats in the House of Delegates voted against that bill. Why? I school to prison pipeline, Hamilton school to prison pipeline. I have Christian,
2: a
1: quick quick comment for you, Christian. Correct me if I'm wrong. The Buffalo shooter wrote in his, you know manifesto that he chose the location that he did because he knew it was a gun-free zone and there would be no one to
2: stop him. Um, is that correct? That's, that's partially correct. So he wrote in his really disturbing manifesto that is being scrubbed from the internet um, that he intentionally chose to attack in his, I believe his home state is in New York, but he mm. intentionally chose to attack in New York. He lived close to the border with, I think mm-hmm. Pennsylvania he intentionally attacked in New York because he said in his manifesto, and I'm not directly quoting, but I'm summarizing, that that um, New York has much stricter gun control laws than Pennsylvania. And the odds of him running into any armed opposition was significantly lower in Buffalo, which also has strict gun control very. laws in addition to the already strict state laws. The city of Buffalo has very strict gun control laws as well. And he said that he intentionally chose his target where he did because he felt like that there was a very low chance that anybody in that crowd would end up having a firearm that could shoot back it, at it him. It
1: would make sense to me that if these shooters knew that there was armed security at the schools, they might
0: be less likely to attempt things like this. Can you, I? You, you would. You know who also believes that? All of the Democrat politicians who are constantly crying for more security, more armed security, when they feel like their security is threatened. Mm-hmm they they saw that as the that is that is the answer to that problem but when it comes to our schools oh well more guns in schools is not the answer well sure as hell was the answer when it was congress you were worried about yeah can i add one more thing to the
2: um, buffalo shooter that i think is actually really of important course. to this discussion and his manifesto probably the most compelling not compelling cuz there was nothing compelling in what he right. wrote but but most disturbing thing that he wrote in his manifesto was um that he predicted that his actions and the actions of other potential future shooters, because he was trying to, that manifesto was a call to arms to other people that believed in what he believed. And this guy was an adamant, actual like white supremacist racist, Mm -hmm. um,
0: leftist authoritarian too. Oh, he called himself an
2: eco fascist. Yeah. Um, a, a left wing equivalent of a fascist, but not quite a communist. Um, but anyway, he had some very disturbing writings, but, um, what what he said was is that he hoped his hope through his actions were that it would spark a discussion that would lead to more federal gun control in the in the in the belief from his point of view that such a thing would result in widespread violence and civil war he intentionally mm. said that he wanted to trigger basically anarchy in the US. He he wanted he wanted the federal government to try to go full Australia and confiscate firearms and then trigger a backlash from the populace that would resist such an an attempt and 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 create a, a violent situation. That that was that was his explicit goal that he wrote in that manifesto. Um which is why he also said that he used a firearm because he he wanted mm-hmm. the politicians on the left to advocate for gun control because he thought that it would result in widespread violence, which I, I think is just insane if you think about it.
1: Moving on to our next point here, Nick, I've I've heard so many comments, you know, especially with everything related to Roe v. Wade happening over the last few weeks, that we care more about guns than kids dying. Uh,
0: I, I guess I guess the response to that could be <laughs> you care more about gun confiscation than you do actually addressing the problem. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and again, it's, it's this way to, and, and it is interesting to me that with everything going around Roe v. Wade right now, this, this argument is, oh, sure. You care about kids in the womb, but not when they leave the womb. No, we care about them in both situations. That's the point. Um, what we find a little bit interesting is that again, when they're in womb, apparently you don't care at all. And then as soon as they come out of it now, you know, you're the ones that we should trust with being the most concerned for their safety. Um, look. We've already talked about how would you harden schools, how would you make it more difficult for or a school to be a target. And you wouldn't do it by putting up a gun-free zone sign no. and, and telling everybody that nobody here will be able to stop you if you come here to perpetuate an atrocity. And And I think that's perfectly reasonable for us to say, you know, hey, look, that's problematic. What we need is more armed security around our schools because clearly they've been a target. Now, I think the other thing that we have to address here is part of this larger cultural issue with respect to what is going on. Because if you have someone that is determined to, um, you know, hurt the innocent in, in this sort of fashion, the idea that if you make it slightly more harder for everybody to be able to get a firearm, that that will dissuade them from doing that, I think is, is patently absurd. I if agree. it was your own security or safety you were worried about, you, you wouldn't behave this way. And and a lot of these politicians, quite frankly, they're not concerned because their kids are all going off to some sort of I don't know, you know private school. Private somewhere. school with their own security, right? So it, again, it if you want to if you want to say we don't care because we don't think gun confiscation is is the key to this, you can say that. But then we're going to come back and look at you and be like, all right, in, in the midst of in the midst of slamming us because we don't agree with your particular solution, you don't seem to want to actually do anything surrounding actions that all of us should be able to agree would actually help. Right, so there's certain things that the left wants to do that we don't think will work and we don't think it's acceptable. There's certain things that we probably want to do that they don't think is acceptable. What are the areas that we agree on? Do we really can we really not get bipartisan support for additional security measures at our schools? Is that not something we can agree on? Because we can continue to have all the battles, we continue to have all the name calling that we want. In the end, none of that is actually making our schools safer. But there are things that we all agree on. So can we can we focus on that first? Can we can we focus on doing the things that we know will have a positive impact, that we, we generally have widespread agreement and support on? Can, can we do that first, and we can we can still have all these little fights that we we like to have, right? And and but I, I am tired of hearing this idea that and and you hear this on so many different issues, not just this one. But it's always if you don't do what the left wants to do, which inevitably is more government power, more government control, more government restrictions. If you don't want to do what the left wants to do, then you don't want to do anything. And and it's the old Bastiat quote: "The socialists confuse that because we don't think the government should do a particular thing, that we don't want it done at all." You know, I, I, again, I go back to. One of the things that I think would be really valuable in this whole debate when we look at schools is, you know, if we actually allowed parents and students other options, I think that could also be beneficial. I understand that a lot of Democrats don't want to accept that. Okay. But we can't agree on additional security. We can't agree on additional early warning. We can't agree on additional training for teachers. We, We can't agree. I would hope that if you're a violent offender that, yeah, those are the people that we actually prevent from having guns. Right. You, you have used physical violence or you have used weapons to hurt other people. Mm-hmm. Yes, we're, we're, you don't get to use guns.
1: Those convicted of a felony.
0: Yes. However, which, which group of people right now within politics, it is constantly trying to let violent offenders out of jail and back into mm-hmm. the communities? We, we had a huge parole board issue here in Virginia where I think that person directly violated the law the, the head of the parole board, was releasing people that had murdered other human beings back into the communities early without telling either the family or local law enforcement. Just, hey, we're letting them go. In complete violation of the rules which govern the way the parole board is supposed to operate. What was the left's response to that? They made her a judge. So, uh, again, I, I don't want to hear this argument that we're not concerned about preserving innocent life when we are, we are right there to increase security, right there to increase the hardening of our schools, and right there to tell violent people, not only can you not have a gun, but if you're going to hurt other people, you belong in jail. But when we do that, we get told we're mean. So I'm, I'm just, I'm done.
1: It seems to me that they believe their stance on gun control or advocating for gun control
0: first is the most politically expedient. I, I think what it is is that they've wanted the gun control for a long time. And anytime something like this happens... That ends up being what they see as just another argument for the policy they already wanted. Mm -hmm. So whereas I will see I will see a a violent act something happening, thinking, okay, how do we how do we address that behavior? Right. Or how do we address the circumstances surrounding that behavior? Right. I think they've already said we want gun control, and so anytime these things happen, therefore that's that's another argument for the gun control we already wanted.
1: Moving on to our next argument from the left, people rarely use guns to defend themselves. Just patently false.
0: It is. Uh, it's patently false. According to the CDC, that is false, right? Under which again, Obama. If anybody's, if anybody's checking, yeah, Obama's CDC was not exactly was not actually a you know a, a gun rights advocacy group. No. Um, but like the New York Times, the way the left will do this, Nicholas Kristoff wrote this article in the New York Times where he said there was only two hundred and fifty nine times that somebody used a gun to defend themselves. It's very rare. What he meant was is that only 259 times where some, a citizen used a gun and actually killed the person that was attacking them. Right. So if you use the gun and you said, get out of my shop or get out of my store or leave my kid alone or whatever it is, they didn't count that. Now, the CDC actually did start to count some of those. And it went from 259 times a year to over 500,000 times a year. And that's a conservative estimate. If you actually want to look at other ones, it goes as high as 2 million. So it goes anywhere Mm -hmm. from 500,000 to 2 million based off the studies. A year that somebody uses a firearm to prevent themselves from becoming a victim. And that's all kinds of people. Well, and this is where we go into the argument, right? Is that every time they say uh, somebody used a gun for a violent act here, therefore we should confiscate guns from everybody. Okay, cost-benefit analysis. The 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 supposed benefit, you can't guarantee us the benefit, you can only hope that it's the the hope uh, of the benefit that you're offering is if I make it more difficult for everybody to be able to get a firearm, then theoretically it will be more difficult for the criminal to get a firearm and therefore they won't get a firearm. <laughs> well, there's all kinds of things that criminals get that is illegal for them to get, sure. that they get anyway. All right? the The cost of that, is everybody that now doesn't have access to a firearm or doesn't go through the process because it's too difficult, that has now become a victim of a crime, again, you want to have the blood on your hands conversation, that person was a victim of a crime that didn't need to be a victim of a crime. The reason why they were was because the government directly intervened to prevent them from being able to have the means to defend themselves. And this is one of the, the biggest arguments that I, I ask people to really wrap their minds around right? When the government passes a law, that doesn't necessarily mean that the, that the intended benefit of that law is going to be realized. What it means is, is we're going to punish something. Mm-hmm. That's what the law means. We're going to punish something. So what we're, or, or we're going to make something more difficult to do. What we made more difficult to do was for everyone to get a gun. Their hope was, is that we make it more difficult for a criminal to get a gun. But the thing they can guarantee they will accomplish is that people that want to follow the law will now be more vulnerable. And when you're talking about anywhere from 500 to 500,000 to 2 million times a year, a somebody lot. uses a firearm to defend themselves and now potentially robbing them of that ability. And you're not taking into account that you may have created tens of thousands of more mm-hmm. victims in this category in order to address the crime over here. If you're not actually considering that, you're not serious about reducing crime no. or violent crime.
1: That, that is so many times a year. And I know from personal experience, carrying myself, you know, fairly often that when when you are trained to carry a firearm for your personal safety and the safety of those around you, your hope is that you
2: never, ever have to use it. Yeah, I have a good um, quick example of of the importance of the whole self-defense component sure. that's that's missed by the press all too often. In the 1980s, there was a serial killer in Montana named Wayne Nance. And um, long story short, he ended up killing at least six people, potentially more than that, before he attacked the home of one of his coworkers. And what he didn't realize was, well, I mean, it was rural Montana. He got into this uh, coworker's house and he uh, attacked both him and his wife. Um, And in the altercation, him and uh, his coworker's wife and him we were both heavily armed and in the ensuing firefight, uh, the serial killer Wayne Nance ended up being shot and killed. Mm -hmm. And it was only afterwards, you know, when they dug into his background that they realized that, oh, he was the guy that was the Missoula mauler. He was the guy that was going around killing all these people in Montana. And he ended up being killed by his own would be victims because they had firearms to defend themselves. All right, speed round
1: here. Okay. I'm going to roll through the last three that we have pretty quickly. I'm going to cap the responses at 60 seconds. Wow, all right. All right? You can both have 60 (laughs) seconds. (laughs) Yeah.
0: All right. All right, here we go. No one needs an assault weapon to hunt. Okay, and I guess if the Second Amendment was created for hunting, that would really mean something. Again, the Second Amendment is not about hunting. The Second Amendment is about two things. It's about your individual right to be able to provide for your own security and about the individual responsibilities um, of free people being able to defend a free society. So if your idea is well, you can only have Flintlocks to do that, or you can only have this, I, I'm sorry. What, what's going on in Ukraine right now? Right, Because we all live in this world where nothing bad could ever happen. They are shipping <laughs> weapons over to Ukraine right now, putting it in the hands of citizens to be able to defend themselves. Now, people look at that in the United States. We don't have to worry about that. So it's... A- Okay, look, I'm sorry. I'm just so tired of this idea that we all just feel like we are so heavily enlightened that we can't imagine a scenario where that will ever be necessary. Ladies and gentlemen, in the 1960s, in the, 1960s the Klan and law enforcement, the government, all right, was oppressing black Americans in this country and putting them in a position where they had to defend their own families. And the idea that you're going to say, well, you can't have a semi automatic because you don't need that because I've decided that's an assault weapon. It's just, it, it's a garbage argument. and It's not what the Second Amendment's about.
1: You went over 10 seconds.
0: Christian?
2: I'll make mine quicker.
0: Uh, I'm not worried about a
2: deer killing me. No. <laughs> so I don't really care about the argument that, oh, well, the Second Amendment's not for, you know, it was only for hunting. Uh, no, it's not because I'm not worried about a deer killing me. I'm worried about another human being trying to take my life, liberty, or property away from me.
1: It is in the left's best interest of their argument for people in the middle of the road to believe that the Second Amendment is just about hunting, yep.
2: but it is not.
1: All right, moving on. The U.S. leads the world in gun violence. So this
0: is, again, this is where we go into the whole, we're going to, we're going to, here's violent, here's violent activity, aggressive violence activity, right? This is what we don't want. Murder, rape, assault, battery. These are the things we don't want. Absolutely. And then what they do is they say, oh, but we're, we're just going to look at the gun violence ones. Well, again, okay, if, okay the guy doesn't have a gun now but he's still committing acts of rape and violence. And he's now committing it more prolifically because he knows the woman he's going to assault or batter or rape knows she doesn't have a gun, right? Because the the government took it away from the state took it away from her. Like even the possibility, he used to have to consider that, now he doesn't have to. So when we look at things like we lead the world in gun violence, a couple things to take into consideration. One, we should be concerned about stopping all violence. All right? having this fixation on a particular mechanism, I'm not saying it has n- no validity whatsoever, but it certainly doesn't have the validity that they're making it out to be. Because if, if your solution to gun violence, right? If that's all you want, I want to stop gun violence. Okay, great. Well, if you've increased violence in other categories and you've made people more vulnerable as a result, have you made things better? No, you have not. Secondly, here's the other thing they can do with these figures. They will look at gun violence or homicides. They don't differentiate between justifiable and non-justifiable. So... Yes, when the police officer shoots somebody that has is, is taken someone hostage, yeah, that is an episode of gun violence. Is it a bad episode of gun violence or did we want that to take place in that particular situation? Yeah, we didn't want the hostage situation to take place, but once it has, then yes, the, the people that showed up and shot the guy that was, that's an episode of gun violence. You're going to put that on the same par? with everything else, but it's exactly what they do when they gather these statistics. And again, it's intellectually dishonest.
1: I'm going to buy a timer to put right here. <laughs> Wait, that was 120 seconds. All right, All right
2: Christian. I, um, took,
0: I took Christian's time. <laughs> uh, remove,
2: uh, remove Los Angeles, Chicago, New York City, Detroit, Washington, D.C., and other associated cities from that list in the United States, position as leader in the world in gun violence goes from number one to I think it's like 118 it or goes something down like significantly. That. It falls off a cliff and the overwhelming majority of gun related homicides in the United States take place in blue cities with Democrat mayors, Democrat city councils. And a lot of gun control laws. Lots of gun control mm-hmm. laws. And usually also blue cities in blue states, too. So to summarize, if you remove the major
1: areas of the country with the highest level of gun control, then
2: our level in that ranking... Well, n- not necessarily, because some, some places are very blue and have high levels of gun control, but have very few... Sure. crimes, because there's not a lot of people. I mean, Vermont used to be a very gun-friendly state, and now it's not, but there's not really a high murder rate in Vermont. It's a very rural state. Vermont it, is the only state to have never required a concealed carry yeah, it was called Vermont carry for so long, but my, my point is, is that, like, remove some of these deep blue cities that have extremely yeah. high crime rates that have been, by the way, surging over the last two yeah. years, going through the roof, especially homicides. You remove them from the equation, and suddenly the United States, still the world's largest you know, possessor of guns, Right, suddenly that homicide rate falls off a cliff. Mm-hmm. Culpepper has tons of guns. Rural Virginia has tons of guns, but the murders aren't in rural Virginia. The murders are in Richmond, or the murders are in Norfolk, or in in Petersburg. Same thing with Maryland. Western Maryland has tons of guns, but the murders are all in Baltimore. Why is that?
0: Yeah, I mean and that's a question that the left well, and, never and, likes to answer. And the argu- the left, bonus question we're going to answer right here: sure. the left will be like, "Oh, well, that's because they get their guns somewhere else and they bring." Oh, well, so where the shootings? So where they're why they're are the, the shootings guns really from? high in Indiana? Right. If Chicago is bad because Indiana's got a lot of guns, why isn't Indiana dealing with this? Yeah. Holy right? cow. If, if,
2: if, if, if I love that argument that the left has about, oh, well, they're importing the guns into Chicago from, you know, rural Arkansas. Well, gosh, the murder rate in Arkansas must be really through yeah. the roof then. Yeah. Like, yeah. no, there's a reason why it's so high in Chicago and it's so low in Arkansas. And it's because the policies in Chicago are enabling the homicides to take place. The simple if, as that. If there's one thing you
1: take from this episode, it is should be that numbers are fungible. Yeah, mm. statistics yeah. are fungible.
2: It, it, Tom, well, Mark th- Twain once said that there's lies, damn lies, in and statistics, statistics. And the whole U.S. leads the world in gun violence is yeah. a damn lie. A lie. <laughs> All right. Last question.
1: No timer on this one because I want I want you to get everything you needed said said.
0: We just don't want to do anything. Uh, I think we've we've kind of already addressed this, so I'll be quick when they say you just don't want to do anything, what they mean is you don't want our solution and our solution is the only one we'll accept. Well, again, if, if you're really if you're really adamant about being able to accomplish something meaningful, then you're willing to sit down have a conversation. You're willing to um, understand the root cause of a problem and then to look at it and then try to fix it. But if it's just, no, no, we've decided it's gun control. And if you don't want to do that, you don't want to do anything. Okay, well, now I'm starting to think you, you have an agenda here. And you've taken, an, you've taken an event and you've tied it to your agenda. Mm-hmm. And that's what's so problematic. Um, because ultimately what all of this comes down to is there, there is a lot that can be done. There's a lot, I think, that people actually agree on. Um, the larger issue here that is not being effectively addressed is why is this happening now? Mm-hmm. Gun ownership in the United States is not a new thing. Um, again, you always hear about people talking like I'm old enough to where I remember, you know, my uncle telling me stories about pulling up to high school and he had his rifles in his truck and then leaving school early to go hunting. And, and yet this wasn't happening. And what I am shocked by it is the complete lack of interest in that question from the people that have have decided that gun control is the only acceptable answer to any of this. Um, It is not logical. It is not reasonable. And I get very, very concerned about people that I think are demonstrating a high degree of irrationality coming up with what the solution is going to be to a major problem, especially when that solution always includes... Them or the government or some sort of it having a great deal more power and you as an individual having a whole lot less.
1: I remember my grandfather telling me about growing up how he would take pocket knives to school and he and his friends would trade them. Yeah, and they—it's fascinating. I, I think you bring up a great point. Why does no one ever ask the question? You know, what? well, be, I'll
0: tell you exactly why because they're not going to like the answer because the answer was is that you know starting about halfway through the twentieth century actually it started before that but it really kicked off at the you know one of the greatest things in the 1960s was the civil rights act right it was the idea of of enshrining in our constitution this this idea and this concept that everybody it was it was really a, attempting to bring about this this idea that every human being has inherent worth and is entitled to equal protection before the law some other things that were going on simultaneously around that was this whole idea of the breakdown of the traditional family um, you know, the, the whole sexual revolution. It was this whole idea of, if if it feels good, do it. Mm -hmm. And, and the tearing down of certain institutions that people consider to be patriarchal or, um, you know, Western civilization and, and oppressive. And it's really ramped up and we're, and we're starting to see what happens now because one of the most common characteristics that you can find among mass shooters, among people just in jail, among violent criminals Father is a complete song. breakdown of the family structure. And that breakdown in the family structure did not start becoming truly prominent to the degree that we, we recognize it now until the seventies. I mean, various demographics were all struggling with that. Once we started implementing this idea that the government could essentially replace the family, that the government could essentially replace the church, that the government was essentially going to be the the primary element in your life, providing for your education, your security, your health, your well-being, and it was no longer going to be the family. It was no longer going to be voluntary community organizations. We saw a drastic increase in the overall breakdown of the family and all of those different institutional structures, community structures that had been so essential to holding society together. Not because they were perfect. People are not perfect. But we, we are finding out, and until we until we are willing to accept it as a possible answer to the problems that we're currently facing, then I'm going to suggest we have a lot of people not serious about it mm-hmm. because they do not want to give up the idea that the government, that this, this secular institution can somehow be the end-all be-all and replace all of those other institutions which have been developed over time and centuries through trial and through error and through faith the idea that you're going you're gonna to replace that with a government agency is absurd, and I think actually explains why we find ourselves in the moral decay that we're currently experiencing.
1: Well, Nick, I, I would say that now is the time for you to do your making the argument section, but I think we've you've done that quite well across this entire <laughs> episode. And I know we're running out of time here, but uh, just want to give give everybody a quick reminder. I, I hope you all found this valuable. I hope that there were some things said here that you'll be able to use in conversation with a friend or, friend or family member. I know that I may be running into conversations over the next couple of days where folks on the left that I'm talking to face-to-face could use some of these talking points, and I will be better prepared now to have those conversations. But if you did find value in these, I hope you'll leave us a comment on YouTube. And I'd also be interested to hear in the comment section what are other arguments you're hearing uh, with people at work or school or anywhere. Um, so that you know, maybe we'll do a special episode in a couple of weeks for the audio-only platform listeners uh, with a couple more responses, maybe not a full-fledged episode, but you know, just a quick 15, 20-minute yeah. thing.
2: I've got a... Um thing that Nick brought up at the very end of this episode that I think is worth talking about sure. at some point in the future, which is why is this happening? Because I think so many people seem to forget that 30 years, until Columbine, this wasn't a, a regular thing. Mm-hmm. In, in the 20th century, up until Columbine, you had one really notable shooting in Texas in the 60s, mm-hmm. the the Bell Tower incident mm-hmm. with a sniper rifle in the yep. 60s. And and the K-stick. guy who did that had a brain tumor, by the way, that uh, apparently was affecting his his mental mm-hmm. Stability, and it might have been a contributing factor to the shooting, but it, this has become – over the last 30 years, this has become substantially much more common, and I don't think that there's been nearly enough discussion over what is rapidly becoming a mental health crisis, I think, in mm-hmm. the United States because I really do think that – now, that doesn't explain what's causing the crisis. Right now, it's you – know you you're just moving the, the issue back yeah. one step, but I really think that there's been more discussion about weapons – and the means through which people are perpetuating these forms of violence, and they're not asking, why is this becoming so much more common than it was 40 yeah. years ago or 50 years ago?
0: I like that. All right. well once again, thank you all for joining us. Um, some research, if you do want to look at some more of this, uh, just facts is actually a really good site. It gives you a lot of like easily digestible statistics. They try to be you know comprehensive in the way they look at it. John Lotts, More Guns, Less Crime, Gun Mist. These are all good things uh, and resources to be able to look. you also find some good stuff with the Cato Institute, Heritage Foundation, uh, GOA mm-hmm. um, uh, is, is another great, NAGR. There's some good organizations out there. Once again, thank you very much for joining us, and we'll see you next episode.